Faced with an unusually large field of presidential primary candidates, the Democratic National Committee took an unusual step. Earlier this year, the DNC set criteria that candidates would have to meet in order to qualify for a spot on the first primary debate stage. On Thursday, the DNC announced which of the 23 candidates from a sprawling field have made it there. The candidates that did make the cut will face off in presidential primary debates over two nights, the 26th and 27th of June. Each night will feature 10 candidates on the stage at a time. And so, in this unusual moment where the DNC has selected who qualified for debates, we have perhaps the first step in how the Democrats will narrow the field from 23 candidates down to one. But what do the rest of the steps in this winnowing process look like? And because this is, of course, a podcast dedicated to the office of the presidency, where exactly does President Trump factor in? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. On this episode, we'll look at how candidates ultimately decide to drop out of the primary race. And we'll look at how Trump may have contributed to why so many candidates are seeking the Democratic nomination. And we'll talk about whether a sitting president can effectively campaign against a huge field of potential opponents. National political reporter Michael Shearer has been covering the DNC's debate process and the Democratic primary overall. I asked him what position the DNC finds itself in now with a list of set qualifiers for the end of June debates. I think voters are pretty comfortable right now with the process, candidates much less so, Um, Mm -hmm. and particularly those at the bottom of the totem pole right now. There's been some slight changes the DNC has made in the qualifications for the debate, which has infuriated Montana Governor Steve Bullock. And there's real concern over the next set of debate qualifications that will come in September when the DNC has signaled they really want to narrow the field from what is pretty overwhelming number now with 23 or 24 running. Do we know how they came to this particular criteria to decide who qualifies for this debate? So the decision was made by Tom Perez, the chairman of the DNC, with a close group of advisors. He laid out a number of principles early on that he said were guiding him. One, he wanted it to be an open and transparent process, which by some measures he succeeded, in other measures he hasn't. And that was a reference to the controversy in 2015, 2016, over how the last debates were set up in a way that clearly benefited Hillary Clinton, who was the front runner then. He also said he wanted to bring a lot of people into the initial debates. And so he structured really an unprecedented two-night debate for the first debates, 10 people on each stage, 20 candidates. It's really big. Yeah. And that will continue in July with another very big debate. He also said he wanted to keep it focused on issues. And then the last principle he focused on was the need to get a really big audience for the debate. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of complaints coming out of 2016. You know, the debates were not many in number and were held on Saturdays or Sundays, you know, before Christmas. I mean, there were weird times for that debate. And so in the end, millions and millions more people tuned into the Republican debates, which arguably gave Trump an advantage when the general election came. Can we talk a little bit about the specifics of the criteria? So for this first round, what criteria did candidates have to meet? So there were two ways to qualify for the first debate. Either you get 65,000 individual donors spread across a number of states, or you get at least 1% in three polls from a list of polls, public polls the DNC put out. Um, 
what's happened in practice is that anyone who's qualified with donors is also qualified with polls. It's not really hard to get 1% mm-hmm. in a national <laughs> poll, uh, especially since there are so many polls that right. are being asked. And most of these polls are multiple choice polls. So your name is mentioned to whoever you're interviewing. Um, the 65,000 donor threshold, though, has become a real way of signaling serious candidacy. Uh, and I think there's 13 at least who have qualified by that measure as well. Can we talk about the potential flaws in this criteria, right? So you have people who need to qualify based on donors. That means that they have to have supporters who have a certain amount of money that they're willing to give them. Mm -hmm. And then you also have people who need to hit a certain amount in polls. But what we know about polls now after what we've seen in in elections past is that sometimes they might construe information that perhaps isn't incredibly reliable. Sure, especially when you're polling at 1%. Right. It's a a very small margin there. Well, so the biggest disadvantage, the biggest way this is slanting the field is if you get into the race late, you're at a significant disadvantage. If you're trying to get 65,000 donors and you only announced your candidacy a month or so ago, which there are several campaigns who only announced in April or May, it's much harder for them to get in polls. It's much harder for them to get these donors. There's an argument that's been made by a number of uh, more moderate campaigns that it's harder for them to raise money from individual donors. Historically, Grassroots energy, especially in small dollar fundraising, goes to the sort of more ideologically jarring candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're talking about Democratic campaign donations, you're talking historically about a universe of, I don't know, three or four million people who've given. I mean, there's new people coming into the system, but that's the starting point. You're talking about, you know, the Democratic primary electorate, uh, you know, the people who will vote in those primaries, you're talking 30, 40, 50 million. So it's a much smaller group of people who are even inclined to give just as little as a dollar. Mm-hmm. And and there's an argument that they slant one way or the other. Now, that's disputed by the other campaigns. The other place it's been complicating is that a number of these candidates were not included in the multiple choice in early polls. And so Marion Williamson, who's a you know author and spiritual speaker, complained early on that she was, just wasn't being named in the early polls, and she had to actually call pollsters and lobby to get get her name listed off. She got both the polling in the end, uh, and because her message has been embraced by a pretty vocal group of people, I, I think she's met the 65, or she said she's met the 65,000 threshold as well. How much does this round of qualifying for, for this round of debates actually matter to a candidate's likely success? Is this sort of like forgive me for this, but likening it to something like The Bachelor where these three did not make the cut and they're essentially gone. <laughs> is it something like that? I don't think the first debate is going to be like that. But I think as we go on, that will be the case. It's possible that the people who don't make this first debate make the July debate, which is only a month away. And at that point, the first debate will be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so there is a path back. But it's a real danger zone for a majority of the people in this field because this field is not going to be this large into the fall. And they all know that. And they, the, the next debate qualifications are significantly higher. And so that debate stage will um, go up. And it's not not making the debate stage. It's having made the debate stage and then not making the debate stage, I think, mm-hmm. that, is, that is really damaging. And there really isn't precedent. I mean, there's not precedent for a field this large, but there's also not precedent for someone not making a party-sanctioned debate and then going on to be the nominee after they'd previously made it. I mean, generally speaking, These debates are a a symbol of how the field is being winnowed. 
the DNC therefore has a lot of power here when it determines its criteria in the fate of some of these campaigns. Enormous power. So the DNC could choose, you know, to have a field of 20 candidates. There's 20 around, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, all the way through the fall into the winter up to Iowa. We could have debates of two stages with 10 each. And that would be a very different race. And it would mean that, you know, the, the people who are polling well, you know, with higher double-digit numbers may not be on the same stage with each other, may not be interacting with each other. It would mean giving a voice to the 1% candidates who may have agendas to take on the front runners. It would allow that to get into the mix. I think that Tom Perez, the chairman of the party, has signaled that's not what he wants. He was very willing to have a very large field to start. But he wants to get this down to basically a group of finalists sooner rather than later. And, and what's, what's driving that decision for him? Why does he want that? Uh, you know, I think it's that he wants to give Democratic voters a real chance to debate and, mm-hmm. and decide. And in a field of 20 where the whole field is not even appearing on the same stage, that's not really what you have. You have sort of more of a showcase. It's not, it's not really a debate. I mean, in, in his view... He's giving all the campaigns a chance to start, but they have to prove themselves. And if they're not getting donors and they're not registering in polls, then that's a sign that they're not going to be very strong against the president. And he doesn't want uh, – he wants to create a nominee that is going to win in November of 2020. He doesn't want to keep it open as as long as possible. And so there's a debate. I mean, he, he has enormous power here to turn the dial as fast or as slow as he wants. Uh, and he's also kept a lot of what his plans are under wraps. We know what the criteria are for the September debate, which are significantly higher than the summer debates. We have no idea what he's going to say for October or November or December. It's very possible that he could make it so we only have five people on the stage by December. As Which opposed- wouldn't necessarily mean we only have five candidates in the race. That's right. And and so that, that brings up another thing. You know, a number of the candidates have begun to talk privately about if if they feel like they're being cut out when they still have a shot, starting a whole separate debate operation of you know running against the party sanctioned debates. That, that's a very difficult path to pursue, but it it could be you have a, a some sort of a rebellion um, that happens in the fall, and it's possible that that rebellion catches some traction. They're able to register for a debate at a later point, but it it is clear that you know there are a number of candidates saying we're not going to let. Tom Perez tell us whether our campaign is viable or not. So then as we look ahead to the winnowing of this field, what is that process like from inside a campaign to decide that you no longer should be running for this party's nomination? It, it really depends on the candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of these candidates are single issue candidates who are running to spread an idea as much as they are running to be president. Like Inslee, perhaps? Yeah, Inslee's running on climate change. Andrew Yang is running on a guaranteed income plan. Marion Williamson is running running on spreading love, mm-hmm. you know, to the country and uh, to the political process. I think for them, the chances of becoming the nominee are already very slight. The chances of making a name for themselves nationally, of um, really changing the public debate, the public consciousness – is higher and and therefore they have an incentive to stay in even when they're not going to be a part of this process. Other candidates are established politicians. I mean, Inslee's an established politician, but they're running on a more broad message and they're running to prove their electability. And if they if they can't prove their electability, it becomes very difficult to continue. Money will be a factor. Mm-hmm. These campaigns cost money. A lot of the campaigns are spending a lot of money right now. 
And the business model is you have to keep raising as you go. You don't just raise it at the start and that carries you through. So if, if you're out of the debates, it's going to be hard to say to somebody, give me another 50 bucks or 2,000 bucks. You know, the other factor will be how they want their legacy to be in this process. I think there is a real interest in finding a candidate who will take on President Trump and win in November. And if it gets to a point where some of these less performing candidates have a choice between really attacking the front runner and really going after him or her and tearing them down or getting in line, uh, you know, that, that also might be a, a pressure they feel. Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, so let's back up. How did we find ourselves with 23 candidates to begin with? How much of this is a reflection of an absence going into this of a clear front runner like we had with Hillary Clinton in, in 2015, 2016? Well, in some ways, we're, we, we don't have a clear front runner like we did in 2016. But, you know, arguably, Joe Biden is has the position that is historically put for the person from the person in waiting. You know, mm-hmm. vice presidents run uh, usually after you know, the president they serve leaves office. Uh, Biden decided to sit out the last race. So he's sort of in that position. Um, but he hasn't cleared the field. And I think that's a big difference. You know, when Hillary Clinton was running in 2015 and 2016, she was able to basically scare most everybody out of the race. Mm-hmm. There were just a few people willing to take her on. And she was making an argument. First of all, it's time for a woman to be president. You don't want to get in, w- in the way of that. This is going to be a historic campaign. And second of all, you're going to lose. And mm-hmm. I'm going to beat you. I mean, I have the money. I have the organization. I have the staff. I've got a, I'm a real force to be reckoned with. It turned out that all that did, you know, wasn't as potent as she thought it was or was saying it was at the beginning, but it did clear the field. I think the other big difference is that they are running now against a president who on a good day polls in the low 40s mm-hmm. in approval, which is bad historically. Now, Trump is a particular kind of politician. He seems to succeed even when he's polling badly. So, you know, there's asterisks to that. But on paper, this looks like at this point, an election that should be winnable, given the history Americans have of generally liking to reelect their presidents. I mean, reelections generally go well. Mm-hmm. You know, more often than not, the, a president running for reelection will win. So I think there's an opportunity here. I think the other thing that is motivating a lot of these people is that Trump's presidency has been so jarring and upsetting, they feel called in a way they wouldn't in more normal times mm-hmm. for Democrats uh, to, to really take him on. I want to ask you about two other things that I've thought about, and you can tell me if they're totally off base. But is there a sense that given Trump's lack of, of public service heading into the 2016 election, that people now think people like Marianne Williamson or others who don't have traditional public service backgrounds feel like they too can win the presidency, that it's more accessible to them than before? Yeah, I think that's absolutely the case. And and so, you know, what Trump did was partly because of who Trump was, but it's also a technological story. In the past, there was no easy way to fund a campaign 
outside the traditional fundraising networks, which were basically wealthy people who had friends who called them and then they wrote checks. Mm -hmm. uh, we started to see with Obama in 2008 that campaigns could raise hundreds of millions of dollars in checks online or on your phone. Trump showed both that he could raise enormous amounts of money for a general election that way. He also showed that he could communicate incredibly effectively around the media uh, in a way that uh, you couldn't do a decade ago or two decades ago. Um, you know, a number of the candidates running now, Andrew Yang, Marion Williamson, people are finding out about them not through uh, the sort of nightly news on broadcast television or even cable networks or national newspapers, although all co cover them in some way. People are finding out about them online. They're finding out about them on Reddit. They're finding out about them on Twitter or Facebook and friends sharing things. And so there's just a way now to do what Trump was able to do, to basically make a viral campaign that gains traction that wasn't available a decade or two ago when you were just a congressman who wanted to run, uh, you know, you would be able to run. Right. Okay. So that's one factor. And then another possibility for perhaps why more people decided to run under this current Trump era how much of the Democratic Party is more fractured than it was before heading into the 2016 election? I think it's an interesting question. I think we're going to have to wait to find that out um, to see how the primary goes. There was a huge ideological divide that Bernie Sanders was able to tap into in 2016 that a lot of people didn't see coming, coming out of two terms of a very popular president for Democrats. They were really happy with Obama when he left office. Mm -hmm. And suddenly Bernie Sanders was able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Hillary Clinton and make clear that there were different ideas in the party and that actually the the ideological architecture of the party was in debate. Um, I think the party has sort of accepted that now. There are clearly big ideological policy divides right now in the party. There are candidates running to basically continue the kind of politics that Barack Obama embraced in 2008 and, and 2012. And there are candidates running to dramatically shake up the system. Um, and it's an open question about, you know, where the party will come down. And I think at some point in this primary, that will be a choice that every Democrat will get to ask themselves. That said, I don't think the Democratic Party is where the Republican Party was in 2012, in 2016. The divisions in the Democratic Party are different in nature. A majority of Democrats still say in polls that they are looking mainly for someone who will beat Trump even if they disagree with him on policy. A majority of Democrats in polls describe themselves as more moderate not as more liberal. And that's different from the Republican Party. Republicans for, for years now have been really trending to the ideological edges, saying that the party is not conservative enough, really wanting to shake it up, looking for rebellion. You had you know, for years these very dramatic Tea Party primaries and Senate races that really upset the whole identity of the Republican Party. And you haven't seen that in the Democratic Party um, so far. So I think they're different animals. Mm -hmm. um, that said, it's very possible that, you know, we get to uh, December or January and we find the Democratic Party deeply divided between a continuation of Obama candidate and a, you know, dramatic remaking of the American economy candidate. And because this is ultimately a show about the office of the presidency, what position is Trump in now as he looks at a field of 23 candidates? I think he has a couple challenges. Uh, one is he likes to dominate everything. He likes to be the show. He wants people paying attention to him. And he is especially talented at doing that. Um, and here you have an alternative show 
coming onto the stage. They're going to have their own debates. They're going to have their own town halls. They're going to have their own rallies in these early states. They're going to be spending a lot of money in television ads. And they you know, will reference Trump, but this is not about Trump. This primary is not about Trump. This is about who Democrats want to be their next president and whether that person should be the president of the United States. And everybody's going to be tuning into that. So I think one of the things you've seen Trump doing pretty successfully so far is constantly trying to get into that storyline and mm-hmm. constantly interfering with what's going on in the Democratic primary because he wants to be the focus of attention. And I think that will be a challenge uh, as they go forward. The, the other challenge I think is Trump has lost a big part of the coalition that got him elected in 2016. And it was a very narrow election. Remember, he lost the popular vote. So he he kind of needed everyone he got in that race. It's particularly moderate suburban women who voted for him. They didn't show up for Republicans in the 2018 midterms. Polls suggest they're not going to show up right now for Donald Trump again. And a lot of these Democratic candidates are fighting for those voters. So even though we're in the primary, the general election has kind of already begun. And I think the president has to figure out a way to not only do what he's pretty good at doing, which is really dramatically increase his base support, uh, which you know there's some evidence he'll be able to do, but also find a way of stopping the bleeding on this other end. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what you know that category of things is the talk, the constant talk of socialism and it's it's negative campaigning as the device Trump uses to do that to basically scare these voters who are unhappy with Trump away from the alternative mm-hmm. and and to make the case the alternative is worse than him. It's interesting to think of the alternative of, of Trump's sort of enemy in this fight as socialism or this whole ideology, because what we've seen really work for Trump politically is having an enemy, right? Having somebody, a one particular person that he can fight against. And though we've seen some comments about Joe Biden and some of that fighting kind of going on, that's one person in this field of 23. So it, it's just interesting to consider that maybe his opponent is actually a whole ideology rather than an individual person. Well, and that that is, I think, that derives from the fact that you have 20 candidates right now. Mm-hmm. And that as the candidates emerge, he will start targeting his fire more directly. He's already sort of turning on Biden mm-hmm. much more in the last month than he has before. And that's because Biden is doing the best in the polls right now. Um, and, and he's got several nicknames for Joe Biden. And, you know, there, Biden went to... Interestingly, Biden's embracing this. You know, Biden wants to basically frame the primary right now as a general election fight between him and Trump. So he went to Iowa this week to give a speech that really attacked the president as an existential threat to the country. And the president went before the cameras of the White House, went before cameras in Iowa to, you know, push back and embrace the sort of name calling way that he has of of handling these challenges. All right, Michael, my last question for you so you can get back to covering these debate developments. Based on your reporting, what do you think the Trump campaign hopes to happen with the 2020 field? Do they want to see it winnow very quickly? Do they want to see a front runner take the whole thing and, and run with it? Do they want to see a 23-person field for as long as possible? Like, What, from their perspective politically, would be the best option for them? I, I think for them, it is less about the number of candidates in the race than whether they can turn the party against itself through the course of this primary. One of the big advantages... Trump had going into the general election 2016 was there was a lot of bad feeling from people who had supported Bernie Sanders in how the nomination fight had gone down and how the convention had gone down. The WikiLeaks emails showed things you know, about how the party had been favoring Hillary Clinton, kind of putting a finger on the scale, which made a lot of people upset. 
And he benefited from that. And he he campaigned for Bernie Sanders voters, you know, in the closing months of that campaign. I think there are lots of ways of getting there. But what the Trump campaign wants most now is for Democrats to be angry at themselves at the end of this process, to feel betrayed, to feel like whoever the nominee is who emerges is not a unifying nominee for the whole party who can excite both moderates and young non-voters and liberal activists. Uh, and so they're going to do what they can from the sidelines to try and magnify divisions within the party. I don't know how much control they have over that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know also whether uh, the number of candidates in the race, one way or the other, necessarily will determine that. There's there's ways you could see it, you know, with, say, 20 candidates stay in the field through December, um, that actually not magnifying divisions because there's no clear divisions that can emerge. There's too many people to think about. Mm -hmm. There's no debates that actually, you know, we're, you're pitting people against each other because there's too many people on stage. You know, the opposite could also be true. It could be that the people who rise from the pack out of this and there's only five candidates left are basically on the same side about things. So mm -hmm. it's not the number. It's, it's sort of the viciousness within the party that the Trump campaign is looking for. Mm -hmm. So hypothetically, a question of can he compete against 23 candidates in the opposite party? The answer is, I guess, sure, right? <laughs> sure. And actually, I think on that question, he's doing pretty well right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have a spectacle and, and it's pretty entertaining one happening on the Democratic side uh, with more people than you can keep in your head at any one time. You have debates coming out. And most people most days are thinking more about the thing that Trump did yesterday. Mm -hmm. And so he's – in terms of in terms of keeping people's attention, I think he has been pretty successful. Now, that challenge will become harder and harder as people get more serious about deciding who they're going to support in the Democratic nominee. We're still very early. Um, but but I think uh, you know the, the president is not doing very well in head-to-head -head polls right now. Mm -hmm. But in terms of sort of tactically day-to-day, -day, I think he's doing okay. All right. Well, we'll stay tuned to your reporting. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? You know what comes next. If you liked it, share it, tell your friends, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks so much. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the intellectually curious Carol Alderman, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. <laughs>